Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Julia, how are you doing? Oh, wow. Um, You know, just another week of arguments with my dad about police budgets. What did he say? Where's he he at these days? uh, I mean, he's like, he's tough. He's, um, he, as I said last week, he really just is of the mindset that that they can be reformed with more training and that they can do more with more so that they need that money. And I make my opposition to that notion, uh, very well known. Um, but he just, I don't know the centrist and conservative media have truly done so much to poison the brands of our, of our elders in this country. And for that, I will never forgive them. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I was a little, I think I was like a little low last week. I was like unintentionally withdrawing from some antidepressants. <laughs> uh, oh, no. I, ran, I don't I know ran, why I laughed at that. That's not funny. It was, yeah. it was, it was kind of funny. I, I ran out of them and my prescribing physician no longer works at that practice. So I had to go through some, some rigmar- rigmarole to get some, but yeah, I started going through withdrawal, which I didn't anticipate. Uh, so yeah, very very punk rock of me to be withdrawing from Prozac. Um, but I'm I got a new prescription. It's all good. Um, I just started taking some actually. Yeah, I've been on a low dose of Prozac for two weeks now, and uh, you know it's uh, things are. Uh, I'm starting to feel a little more chill. Not not too much more chill, but a little bit. What I like to say about about Prozac and maybe I mean Prozac is the only SSRI I really have experience with, but I just feel like it lifts the floor a little bit. It makes the lows a little less low, uh, and for that I appreciate it, and I am forever in its debt. Um, but yeah, I don't know. God, my I mean. I would really like my brother to pick up some of the fucking slack with these conversations with my dad because he more or less believes the same thing that I do here. But, you know, he's busy or whatever. I don't know. It's just like they always say, you know, the responsibility falls uh, disproportionately on women to do the emotional labor of talking to their cop dads. Yeah. 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 There's <laughs> brothers really are not uh, picking up the slack here. You know what? That's that's the emotional wage gap that we just don't talk about enough. Um, yeah. OK, Kate, tell us about your weekend. Uh, well, it was my birthday and I wanted to do something fun for my Ooh. birthday because, you know, been in, more or less inside except for the protest for the past three months. Um, and so uh, I went to a small cabin in the woods uh, with Jake and, uh, you know, just spent the weekend hiking, cooking some food and stuff. Uh, yeah, it was funny because I... Uh, 
I told Jay, Jay asked me what I wanted for my birthday and I told him that, you know, just like something, something romantic, like a card. And so he drew me a picture of our cats who are very long. They're just, they have long <laughs> bodies. And they said, uh, and then he said, I want to be with you for a long time. And it was like actually a good drawing of our cats. Like it really wow. kind of represented their essence. But one of our cats like smells a little bit. Uh, I don't know. I mean, actually, they both do. They both kind of like smell like a zoo. They're kittens and they just like dump their food on themselves. And I don't know. But he drew like lines. And I was like, what are these? And he's like, oh, they're like stink lines from Pearl. And I was like, Jake, nothing romantic ever includes stink lines. (laughs) That's not romantic. (laughs) <laughs> but uh <laughs> i put it on my fridge you know <laughs> like <laughs> wow yeah it's, it's comedian boyfriends man yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow well that is that sounds like a hell of a birthday to me um, yeah no we had a good time it was like it was really beautiful to get to like see uh some nature and stuff yeah yeah um I have not been out of the city since this has all started and it's really, it is, um, getting to me. It's, I feel that I need to get out of New York at some point. I just don't know when that will be. Um, so that's tough right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, Last week, New York, like, technically started, like, reopening or whatever, Mm -hmm. which I guess means mainly that um, construction jobs are allowed to happen again and um, curbside pickup for retail, I think. Um, It's really basically the same um, as it has been. And uh, but I will say that people I you know, I will continue to shame people who are not wearing masks because People seem to have taken phase one uh, very widely in this uh, in this city as meaning that they don't have to wear masks anymore. And I really it makes me so upset because like all the data, all the studies show that like if mask wearing, if if like even 80, if 80 percent of people wore masks, we would see like cases plummet. Yeah, the early data from the protests show that uh, COVID transmission during the protest was like very, very low. At least that's the preliminary findings, like less than 1%. And, um, you know, uh, they're theorizing that that is because so many people were wearing masks, also that it's outside. But I thought that that was really encouraging, you know, that if it's outside and it wears masks and and if it's outside and people are wearing masks that, you know, that uh, perhaps can be, um, you know, a safer way to see other humans. Um, Oh yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the guidelines thus far have said that like outside wearing masks is, a very low it's like a relatively low risk of of transmission because of how this disease is transmitted um and i've been to a bunch of protests so far but the two big ones that i've been to i did not see one person not wearing a mask 
Except for the cops. Except for the cops. Uh, but even, I, you know, um, on Saturday or Sunday, I can't, what day is it? I don't know. Um, but I went to the, um, the March for Black Trans Lives uh, in Brooklyn. And there were over 12,000 people there. And again, I did not, I, di- I really didn't even see cops there, um, but I, uh, but the cops were, uh, NYPD definitely had a helicopter that was very low to, uh, that was riding very low and it made hearing some of the speeches a little difficult. Um, and, but I really did not see a single person in attendance who was not wearing a mask and, you know, as you and I have both said said this before, and we are not the first people to say this, that, like, at these protests, I mean, the most efficient distribution of masks and hand sanitizer and just any sort of, like, lit- small resources uh, to keep people, like, water, like, bottled water, little snacks and things like that, individually wrapped snacks, everything is so conscientious and uh yeah all of these organizers are doing one million times better than our federal government at preventing people from getting sick so uh that has been very encouraging to see um and and sad to see on uh on the other side of the coin because our federal government is such a fucking disaster but um yeah the Rally, the the March for Black Trans Lives was probably, like, one of the most beautiful things I've, I've ever been a part of. And, oh, that's awesome. Um, black trans women are, you know, as all the, are just getting m- murdered at astronomical rates. Um, and the, the speaker's who were present at the rally uh, were all black trans women. Um, And they are just some of the most, and I'm saying this in a, in there are some of the most like radical people I've ever come in contact with. And I just get like, I was so fired up hearing all of them speak and everyone was wearing white. It was just like a really beautiful exercise in solidarity. It was it it was like serene almost. Like it was clearly like there was a lot of anger and there was a lot of emotion, but there was also like a lot of hope. Um and I just thought it was it was really beautiful. Uh and yeah, and then you know, and obviously this is this is Pride Month, and there's just a lot of ongoing conversations about how we can better protect our trans siblings, especially black trans women who are probably, like, maybe the most vulnerable demographic of people in America. <laughs> like, yeah. um, from so many different perspectives. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, it was a very cool, but very like sobering day seeing what, I mean, 
But yeah, black trans women have been on the front lines of the of the LGBTQ movement since the dawn of it, obviously, with like Stonewall and everything like that. But um, yeah, and I guess that brings us to yesterday's Supreme Court ruling, which was a six to three decision on Monday uh, that the Civil Rights Act protects gay and transgender Americans from discrimination in employment. Um, and yeah, it was a six to three decision. (laughs) Shockingly, Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. Um, and he's like a big constitutional originalist. Uh, but John Roberts was also, also sided with like the liberal members of the court. Um, and Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) wrote the dissent he's so gross oh he's so gross i hope he goes straight to hell um and what was his dissent what was his like uh rationale for i gotta be honest i didn't read it uh yeah (laughs) i just like someone people were sharing that video from his his confirmation hearing where kamala harris asked him if he agreed with the same-sex marriage ruling decision, uh, same-sex marriage ruling, and he couldn't answer it. Um, He's just gross, but I don't, I really, I mean, I certainly don't want to give, even though Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, I don't want to give him, he's not, like, socially liberal. He's a constitutional originalist, and he, basically, his gripe with this is, like, in the letter of the law, he thinks that the Civil Rights Act is like, he basically thinks that the Civil Rights Act is like poorly written and therefore it allows this to be like kind of an umbrella uh, piece of legislation. But um, yeah, I really don't want to give him, like John Roberts has also at times been like a swing member of the court and especially on like LGBT issues. Um, and I believe he wrote, if my memory serves me correctly. I think he did write the majority opinion for, um, the legal, the legalization of gay marriage. Um, but no, that I was mean, Kennedy. Oh, Kennedy did. Okay. Yeah. Um, but like, <laughs> yeah, Neil Gorsuch I just, I, again, I don't want to give him any credit because this guy absolutely, I mean, he might think that our, our gay and trans uh, brothers and sisters deserve rights, but he also thinks that corporations are people. And well, I mean, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I did take a peek at Republican Twitter, as I do sometimes, to see what, uh, and it was a, Monday was a full-scale meltdown. Uh, oh, because, like, because of that, they got upset? Oh, my God, yeah. Um, like, I think one tweet that I remember is uh, from, from, like, a prominent Republican was, like, what is even the point of the Republican Party? Because they have, like, five super conservative justices on the court. And um, I was doing a little digging. Yeah, I mean, like, cultural conservatives, which is, like, a big part of 
of Donald Trump's base. Yeah, the evangelicals. Uh, evangelicals. I, yeah, that's um, like my extended family were evangelicals for Trump. They're like, he was sent by God. He's an unusual messenger, but, you know... <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, that he is. He is, uh, yeah, he is unusual. Um, yeah. So there was this, yeah, there was this conservative writer, uh, Varad Mehta, uh, and he he said that Monday's decision is quote the end of the federal society. Uh, judicial project. Gorsuch was grown in the Federal Society lab and did this, adding that the whole point of the Federal Society and the whole point of electing Trump was, quote, to deliver Supreme Court victories to social to social conservatives. Um, so people are pretty fucking mad. And yeah, everybody like, I mean, I love that, that for them. I do love that for them. I think that that's beautiful. Um, the Federal Society, I do remember uh, during his confirmation, yeah, he is just like, if the Federalist Society were a person, it would be Neil Gorsuch. Um, so I think that people, like, socially conservative America is uh, really having a, having a meltdown right now. And they... Part of the election of Trump was, you know, again, you know, their idea of making America great again. And it was a lot about these cultural issues. It was a, a lot about these, what they consider to be wedge issues. Um, and so to see a very decisive, this was not a five to four, this was a six to three, like... Uh, I am so excited about uh, our guest this week. Oh, uh, yeah. she's great. You've been volunteering for her campaign, yeah? Yes. Uh, well, she and Jabari Brisport, who we had on last week, do a lot of organizing events together because there's a lot of overlap in their districts. So I actually can't uh, vote for Farah. She is not in, my, I'm not in her district, but still love her. You can vote for Jabari? Can vote for Jabari. Oh, so there's different districts for all of the different offices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I'm in both of their districts, so I get to vote for them both. I'm She's really a excited. lucky girl. Yeah. yeah. There's, well, there's, anyway. a, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap uh, in their districts. So Yeah. So uh, we talked this week to Ferris Soufront Forest and um, she's running for state assembly. She is a nurse and uh, a tenants rights activist. Um, just a super, super cool conversation. I am bummed that we don't have the video of this conversation because the look on her face when we talked about Andrew Cuomo was... Oh my God, priceless. Just, I Incredible. mean, yeah, just the, the disgust is, is true, you know? Yeah. Uh, I thought, I, you know, I thought you and I really had, had it down in terms of disgust for Andrew Cuomo, but Fair brought it to a whole new level and yeah. we stand. We do. Um, all right. So uh, thank you so much. And we hope that you enjoy the interview. And this is also probably uh, the last uh, regular episode that we'll put out before uh, the election in New York. So, you know, please uh, vote for the uh, leftist candidates in your area. As we talked about on, later on in the interview, the, these elections are, are won by a, a small a, a small margin. And there's a lot of um, DSA candidates and uh, other progressive candidates running, um, trying to unseat some incumbents. We've had, you know, a lot of different ones on the show. So, yes, vote, vote. 
uh, in this oh, man, I sound like Barack Obama or something. <laughs> no, Don't we're taking vote. We're, we're yeah. taking we're taking voting back from from centrists from and, the libs. Yeah, um, yeah, we're gonna vote to own the libs. That's yeah. what we're gonna do. Um, all right, thank you so much. Enjoy Bye. the interview. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Uh, we are so excited this week. We are here with Farah Soufrant Forrest, who is running for New York State Assembly. Um, and we're just so excited to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kate and Julia. I'm really excited to be on the show with you guys today. We're ladies today. <laughs> hey, I mean, no, the sh- yeah, the show's called Reply Guys. We think of it as a gender neutral term. Uh, sure. Anyone can be a reply guy, uh, gender irrespective. Yeah, it's um, really more about how you reply, right. how and if, how often, <laughs> to what degree you annoy other people with it. Uh, sure, sure. So you are a DSA-backed candidate. You uh, identify as a democratic socialist, right? Okay. Yes, I do. Um, what is What does it mean to you to call yourself that? When I say that I'm a democratic socialist, I'm saying, first of all, that everything is up for conversation. It should be up for conversation. The idea that... Um, we should have an active role in how our lives are governed and how they, how everything is rolled out, basically, when it comes to housing, to healthcare, to um, any other public infrastructure. Our, pub, our power should be public, right? We have a say in that. And then when I say a socialist, not only do we have a say in it, but we should have a control. We should have a, we should control, right? Um, so when we talk about socialism, the basics is that, um, the means of production is in the hand of the worker, right? We sweat, we work hard, we have earned the right to control what we create. And so democratic socialism. (laughs) Amen. Thank you. Um, yeah, and Farah, correct me if I'm wrong, you have been very, I mean, you are like a born and raised New Yorker. You have gone through the CUNY and the SUNY system for school. You are New York in your blood. And I, I love it. Um, but you've been very involved in um, the housing justice for all movement um, mm-hmm. as well. That's kind of, that's where I first became familiar with you. Um, and what has your experience uh, doing that work been like? Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that I am New York born and br- born, born and bred. Um, yes, I am. And also, but I'm also like Haitian as well. That's like right. a big part of it. I didn't eat pancakes until I was in college. So I don't, I don't think <laughs> that was a big American <laughs> piece. That's a big American piece that was missing in my childhood. Pancakes. Wow. Um, <laughs> So um, that is that is very important. Yes, that is very important. Buffalo very wings. Important. Oh my god, dipped in blue cheese. Who discovered that? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I wouldn't want to erase that part of your uh, yeah. your experience because pancakes and buffalo wings very important. I mean, now that we've very we've important. talked about the the two good things about the United States right now, 
Um, it's going to be hard to fill the rest of this half hour or so, but yeah. You know, we really, we got um, it all out there in the first five minutes, but. But yeah, you had asked also, how did I get um, my experience in the tenant movement? I actually started in high school. Um, I was organizing with the, I participated in um, Pratt Area Community Council's um, outreach into the community to educate uh, people about lead-based poisoning, especially mm. migrant communities, immigrant communi- communities, excuse me, um, that just didn't know that chipping, not only is it bad to have chipping paint, but the fact that it can harm your child by the chip going to their mouth. That was important. And I felt really proud of the work that I did there. And then um, the fight got personal for me when my building went um was being converted from rent-stabilized units to luxury condominiums. And um, I knew that my landlord was the type to get uh, eviction happy. And so I mm-hmm. said, no, this can't really go the way it is. So I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. And I had to let my tenants know that, A, they have a right to stay. And B, we have grounds, like we have things that we can use to fight back. But I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew that there, it was out there. And so that's how I joined the Housing Justice um, coalition, coalition, not only to educate myself and my tenants, but to also fight for everyone, right? And today, it could be me. It's me, but I don't want someone to go through a condo conversion. It's very um, weird to now, you know, have a group of people who are buyers and then they're tenants. Like, we all live in the same building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually, through many trainings with the Crown Heights Tenant Union, doing work with them, and then eventually getting arrested on June 4th to finally to put, make the final push so that the legislature legislation can finally vote yes to make sure that not only rent stabilized laws are permanent, but also that they um, are stronger and better. And now we just have one more bill, the good eviction, good cause eviction bill to make sure that everyone reaps the benefits of being protected and feeling secure that you won't be um, picked out for any reason or stupid reason. So the, the good cause eviction bill means that there's only certain reasons that landlords are able to evict and they have to be able to prove it, right? And yes, and then also they have to offer you a lease, whether or not you're rent stabilized, because if you're in a market rate apartment, they don't really have to. Um, And then what's important is that they cannot raise the rent um, by astronomical fees, like astronomical levels, right? So last year, for those of you who might be uh, unfamiliar with the the New York state laws that we're talking about, Last year, the Housing Justice for All Coalition um, worked with a lot of uh, our our state legislators, including Julia Salazar, um, on basically a package of nine bills. um, And eight of them were passed. The only one was not uh, the only one that was not was good cause eviction. Um, And what a lot of those bills did was close the loopholes uh, that existed in the market that allowed landlords to unjustly jack up the the rent prices. And, um, you know, the commodification of housing is something that is like really an ongoing issue, especially in cities like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, 
um, where you see people, kind of corporate landlords who own 10 buildings. Um, and it's causing like a, a scarcity, a housing scarcity when there actually isn't one. There's actually, um, there are a lot of um, kind of luxury condos that end up going vacant or um, there are people who have pied a who only live in their condo, you know, two months out of the year or something like that. That's very common in cities like New York. But it's one of the one of the good things about rent control is or <laughs> it's really a corrective measure, I think, because what we've seen more and more is that rents are so high that people you know, even if they want to buy, purchase a home, are never able to because so much of their paycheck is going to rent. And I think it's, you know, basically every baseline cost of cost of living item has increased in price by like a few hundred percent, uh, even with inflation since like the 1970s. And that's why you have people, it's kind of creating a perpetual underclass of people who can't own property. Um, and you know, there's like, obviously there's a, you know, there's an ongoing conversation about like, should home ownership, like, should we all just be renters? Whatever. But that's, that's really neither. That's, that's not a conversation for this time. That's just some backstory on, on the laws, uh, that Farah was referring to uh, that were passed last year. And those have had really like immediate effects for New Yorkers. I know people personally who were like on the precipice of being evicted um, because their, or their rent was going to be like doubled and um, the law really stepped in and, and helped them out. So it's been a pretty big victory, but it's not, the fight isn't over. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because um, really what you, I think, and this is what I believe, is that housing is a human right. Yes. There should be no business of housing people. It should be the service of housing people. Um, one of the things that, and you alluded to, you, you spoke about this, but when you inflate rent, you inflate property values. Mm-hmm. And so that, in effect, that, eventually prices out even small landlords. You mentioned 10 corporate landlords that own 10 buildings. My landlord purchased 100 properties in one day. Jeez. I mean, we talk about, yeah, okay, it was crazy. Like, you talk about, you know, even billion, billionaires are questioning the existence of billionaires. I don't hear landlords questioning purchasing 100 properties in one day. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's 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 ludicrous. I mean, we have ninety over ninety two thousand homeless people in the street on the street. Excuse me, in the Big Apple, right? Everyone's supposed to be able to get a slice, and uh, people are not even getting a slice. They're not getting a bite. They're just left out there with nothing. And I think that's what um, ultimately, when we say homes guarantee that we're fighting for. It's this idea that we're aiming at housing people humanely and um, equitably, like for everyone. And so um, 
that's why I'm really, I mean, good cause eviction bill would be one step, but I'm looking further than that. I'm looking for supportive housing for patients with HIV AIDS. I'm looking for um, us to be able to transition a lot of people that uh, used it or trauma. I work in ACS, so I have youth that are traumatized or that have gone through so many situations, them being able to be transitioned to homes one day. Um, mothers who leave the hospital with insecure DV or domestic violence, excuse me, like that is also part, like we're supporting the most vulnerable people in our um, communities and making sure that they remain safe. And there's a lot of money in housing. It's crazy that, for example, homeless, right? If you put, um, if you're a, a landlord and you have a vacant apartment, it actually pays to house homeless because while you could have charged um, a person uh, $1,600 for that apartment. On the low end, on the very on the low, low end. end yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> We're talking Barnes prices now, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the lower end. But then you can charge um, the city $3,000 for that same apartment to house a homeless person. But we really need to eliminate that. Why not house that person? Why not provide that, help that person maintain their homes in the first place? And so um, it's, just, it's just a lot of things that there are so many other loopholes we need to cut back on. And that's why I think it's super, super important that we have democratic socialists running on that platform, that housing is a human right. I absolutely 100% agree. Um, one thing, it's, you you were working with the, the Crown Heights Tenants Union. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that is a big issue in Crown Heights right now and really all over Brooklyn, all over New York, all over the country is uh, people getting pushed out of their homes due to gentrification. Um, is is there what what can be done about that from a policy level that will like you know prevent people from having to leave the neighborhoods where you know they have roots and families and friendships um how, how can we solve that other than like you know kind of getting mad at uh individuals for moving places mm-hmm. um when we look at reasons why some gentrification thrives in Crown Heights is that um, there are so many opportunities for real estate to develop, right? This, um, first of all, I am one that will, when in office, I will fight back against um, tax abatement for Mm -hmm. um, developers, right? If you're coming into the neighborhood, and you are choosing to develop in Crown Heights, then you should know that there are, that that comes with the idea that you need to focus on housing people that are already there. And so I don't see why we are paying, um, we're allowing cuts for developers to come in and then create and build luxury spaces for people who who are not in the neighborhood and need to be housed if that makes sense yeah um and so that's one step and then also redefine what is affordable right 
um, Jabari who Brisport, who's running for state senate, who's part of the DSA slate. He he's a math teacher and he breaks it down. He says, well, if you have a building that you say is thirty percent affordable, then that means that seventy percent of the building is unaffordable, mm-hmm. and that's just too much. That's where know? the math teacher comes in. Yeah, <laughs> where the math teacher yeah. comes in, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, um, we, have, we had Jabari, Jabari on a few weeks ago, and Kate and I both were like, we, we'll leave the math to you. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, he's super good at numbers, I guess. Um, but basically, if, if 70% of the apartment of the building is unaffordable, um, then that, that, shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the formula that we're using. Um, when we look at what affordable actually is, we need to look at the salary of people who are living in neighborhood. When you have new um, people coming in with higher incomes, it pulls the number up, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the um, average medium income that used to be like twenty or $30,000, which is for the majority of the community, because you have the select few that pull the number up, now you're looking at an AMI of $54,000 or $56,000. So we need to adjust that formula to make sure that even if you are poor, poor, rationing out um, affordable housing, it needs to actually be affordable for those who need it the most. And I, I just want to go back quickly to, to one of the things you were talking about um, in terms of the, the tax abatement and the tax breaks that um, developers get. You know, we saw a, a citywide public outcry when Amazon tried to come in to um, to Long Island City and the tax breaks that they were going to receive. And everyone was so outraged, rightly so, of course. But I, I'm surprised that there wasn't the same sort of fight for something like Hudson Yards, yeah. which is... I gotta say, as bad. <laughs> which is very creepy, too. Hudson Yards, yeah. it's just... it's a it's a creepy 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 vibe yeah or even just look in brooklyn the atlantic yards that's very contested um Mm -hmm. we're looking at the brooklyn armory that's very contested as well um when you're looking at state land city land that should be the number one spot to develop for the people but yet you have the the land being leased out but with no guarantee of affordability it's, right. We're just leaving it at the hand of the developer, the for-profit developer, to decide what they're going to do with the land. And um, I, I don't, I, I know, I, ha- I know why that happens is because we have um, politi- politicians that aren't accountable to the people that vote them into office. I mean, when we look at my incumbent, he has taken well over a hundred thousand dollars from developers in the last eight years and then it's kind of like oh well i wonder why he's saying yes to the bedford armory i wonder why he's not really um firm on what's happening at atlantic yards i wonder why i'm not i don't want to play these games with i wonder if you say if you are taking money from real estate you cannot possibly be beholden to the people. You know, right. money power and people power just just can't mix. It cannot, which is why I'm so damn it that I do not take 
corporate, nor do I take real estate development money um, because I want to be beholden to the people. If a real, real estate developer calls me and if they're not talking about developing 100% affordable housing, I don't have to take their phone call because guess what? You didn't put me in office. You didn't pay for my papers. You didn't do anything mm. for me. So I don't owe you not one t- minute of my time. Right. I don't Absolutely. have to. I mean, I'll, you'll, you'll send the paperwork and you'll email it to me, but that don't mean I have to pay attention to it because you don't got nothing on me. <laughs> I, I oh, really that's... want you to just email that back to, <laughs> to any real estate person. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that gets in touch with you when you're elected. Um, I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, we, I, I feel like the, the work of, that has been ongoing in New York state politics for, you know, much longer than I've, I've been here the last like 10, 20, 30 years is trying to get corporate real estate money out of Albany mm-hmm. um, because it has had such a chokehold on uh, city politics for so long. We talk about this all the time here, but like it's one of the reasons why we can't even get like a pied de terre tax passed because so many of our legislators in the state house are uh, deep in the pocket of uh, corporate real estate. And obviously, New York in New York City, in a city like New York, it's the, one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world. Um, so it's a huge, it's a, it's, it's a considerable battle, but people have been able to, to win in, um, you know, with campaigns like yours that are mm-hmm. just like very people led and, um, you know, are really speaking to people's material needs and not just kind of platitudes that they would want to hear. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that people meeting people at their needs, their most basic needs. Um, I'm like super proud of the fact that, you know, I'm a nurse running for office because I understand people's needs. I mean, it's something that we learned in school. We we are trained to this. This is how we work. You know, when you're talking to a patient and you're speaking to a patient, one of the things is that if they for example, we have to assess if the chair that they're sitting on is comfortable. Yeah. Or that if they're not breathing properly, then there's no way I can teach them about discharging, discharge instructions, excuse me, and getting them out in the, out the door. I have to basically always start from the bottom and work my way up, which is very different from how our politics are now they just kind of drop it from the top and hope it reaches the people on the bottom and um that's just not the way it works you have to basically meet people down here and work our way up so um i like how we talk about criminal justice right oh or we're going to talk about refunding our schools (laughs) defunding nypd and refunding our schools right um but we have to talk about like basics how do people sleep how do people eat? Do people get the things that they need? You know, I it's it's crazy that during this during my campaign, um, COVID-19 popped up because I was like, see, 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 this is what we were talking about. This is the problem. You're we have. A massive pandemic hit and then 
Now we're scrambling. But you've been making, there's been cuts to hospitals for the last 10 years, you know? There has been cuts to Medicaid for the last how many, 20 years. And then we suddenly are like, oh, wow, what is this situation? Rather than understanding that we have created this situation by not being civically engaged, by allowing politicians to get away with cutting, and then also allowing um, the ultra-rich to continue to keep their and hoard their billions and not spread the wealth. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where I'm going at on, like, that's what the campaign is pushing back on all points. Like, no, this is, this is healthcare. It has to be basic. Housing has to be basic. Because if you kick somebody out right now, you evict someone out their apartment, you're basically exposing them to COVID-19 and then, poof, death, right? So, not poof, death, <laughs> automatically. <laughs> but, on, you know, they get ill and possibly expose someone else. So, um, like healthcare is housing and housing, housing is healthcare. And I say that all the time. And now we clearly see what that means. Yeah. I, yeah. I can imagine that, um, being a nurse has really informed the way you're looking at, uh, how okay. we should be responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I mean... I don't know. That that seems true. Hey, Is that true? <laughs> yeah. He he our governor has cut four hundred million dollars from the healthcare budget in the middle of a pandemic. It is he's saying horrible. that we are in a deficit that he a, 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 a artificial cap that he created. If we want to re generate revenue, um Julia alluded to some, we have a Pierre de Terre tax. Instead of giving tax cuts for owning a yacht, you need to pay some <laughs> more taxes. I know, right? You get uh, a tax cut for owning a yacht. I know. I know. You also get a tax cut for owning a helicopter. <laughs> a helicopter? Come on now. Yeah, well, you know, this is, look, you know, just despite uh, my yacht. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, Kate, Kate and I famously yacht owners, helicopter owners, I, private not, jet owners. Okay, I don't have a yacht. I do like yacht rock from time to time. Yeah, you do yacht rock. Yeah, <laughs> Pina Colada. Very good song. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's it's super clear uh, to me anyway that. Medicare for all is super necessary, not just during this time, but but always. Um, mm -hmm. I, my husband got sick from COVID nineteen, or they COVID like nineteen like symptoms. Who knows? Oh wow! Um, but because we he never got tested because when he went to the hospital, they told him that they're not giving out tests unless you were literally dying mm -hmm. or you couldn't you couldn't breathe, and so. He was sent back home and not only just sent back home, we received a bill in the mail um, a couple of weeks later charging him for that. Now, thankfully, we can take care of that copay, but honestly, in the middle of a pandemic, I, I don't want to hear about copays. Yeah. I don't want to hear about, you know, prices of medication um, or I had one voter I had called and it just, this really just made me cry. She was, um, she suffered hy hy hydrocephalus, 
um, during her COVID-19. That's brain swelling, right? Brain swelling. And so now this woman who was a professor, a writer, a journalist, is now literally stumbling over her words. And you can imagine the rehab this woman needs to just get back a little bit of her life. And now the bills come on now, you know, because rehab costs money. Medications cost money. Follow-ups with specialists cost money. So right now, more than ever, the New York Health Act needs to pass. So whoever's listening right now, call these one or two holdouts, senators that are holding out, please call them because this is, we're like one or two votes away from finally having universal health care in New York City, in New York State. Like we don't have to wait for a national Medicare for all. We can have it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's actually kind of how they did it with the Affordable Care Act in the uh, in the first place. It was modeled off of the state models of uh, of what later became um, ACA at the national level. And I think I've been I'm sure you've seen this, too, that there are all these stories coming out from all over America where people are getting serious bills um, after getting uh, COVID-19 and getting released from the hospital. Uh, There was one woman who had a, like almost a million dollars, I think in (laughs) um, assuming she uh, was one of the like tens of millions of people in this country who are without health insurance. And also of course, so many people, uh, millions and millions of people lost their jobs and healthcare is incredibly tied to employment. Um, so it's just the need for Medicare for all has never been more clear. And I, yeah, for governor Cuomo to try to push through an austerity budget at a time like this is unthinkable. Yeah. Disgusting. Um, You're being nice. That's disgusting. Oh, it is yeah. disgusting. No, I, I agree. The we, only thing, the only thing, <laughs> we're no friends yeah. of, of Andrew Cuomo on this show. Yeah, the only thing more disgusting than that is perhaps the people who uh, sexualize that in some way. The the Cuomo sexual people. Sexual. It's so gross. Uh, <laughs> it's just because, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just because he can string more words together in a sentence yeah. than our president. That yep, is yep, a very yep. low bar to clear. Um, but. Yeah. And we are headed into probably another, I mean, we, we've already, the, the country has already been in a recession for a number of months now. Um, and we are headed into an even deeper, uh, depression. A lot of economists are saying, and a lot of fiscally conservative people are going to try to do exactly what governor Cuomo did. And, a crisis has never been abated by an austerity budget. That is historically it's never happened. We got ourselves out of the great depression with the new deal. Like that is uh, you. It's the fact that we continue. And also the austerity budgets never affect obviously, Austerity budgets never seem to affect the richest no. among us. Let, look, at, look at Jeff Bezos. He's gotten richer. I yeah. Know. The billionaires have only gotten richer. He's not even poor, a billionaire. He's a trillionaire now. He's a trillion. Yeah. 
you know, these things is, you know, sometimes I get, I have to um, be calm about this, right? But sometimes- It's so hard. It's, it's so a, hard it's to be so calm. Hard, <laughs> you know, and that's where, you know, I understand what it means to know that, wait, I haven't put in any hours at my job for 13 weeks or plus 13 weeks, and I'm still expected to pay the rent. I'm still supposed to put food on the table. And here we have people multiplying their wealth on top of me. Mm. That, that, has to, that system has to change. That system has to change. And um, that's why I went into politics in the first place. Just, I just can't, I can't work, I can't function as a nurse and say, here, um, person, patient, here is a solution that'll fix it. Because no, you can't fix it. Your insulin is too much money. Your housing is deplorable. Your job is stressful. Your public transit, your public transportation is, 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 doesn't work. It's, it's, you know, and then put on the fact that there's no one you can talk about because there is no mental health parity. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, I, it seems like in some ways the consensus that's starting to build is, oh, you know, we're just going to declare coronavirus over, you know, like it's just not a, it, yeah, we're just, we're done with it now. But I mean, it's like the virus is, nothing has happened, you know, that really changed it. So, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, let's switch gears for a minute because I wanted to ask you about uh, a topic that is very much present in everyone's mind which is uh policing uh cuomo uh this weekend said uh that people do not need to protest anymore because uh it already worked they decided to reform the police uh and uh you know i would uh i would say that uh it, it really that doesn't seem true to me uh what are your thoughts on what should happen with policing in new york or or what shouldn't be happening with it Mm-hmm. Well, though our dearly beloved Governor Cuomo wants to close the chapter on this book of police brutality, unfortunately, he's left us at a cliffhanger, um, which is simply not enough is being done. We have not talked about the rampant unaccountability of police officers. We have not fully addressed the amount of violence that is um, used when policing black and brown communities. We have not spoken about, okay, so the city council has passed uh, approval to cut the budget of police officer of the NYPD by $1 billion. First of all, that means $5 billion left. But you're going like, to give us one billion. Like Jabari mm-hmm. would know. Math teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Math teacher. Look, he taught us well. I'm learning, girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning. Yeah. But that means $5 billion left. But we're talking about, okay, so they haven't designated that this $1 billion, where is it going now? Because when we say defund the police, we're meaning reinvesting in our communities. Um, and so... I, I, I like how he wants to close the book, but it's not closed. It's not closed. There has not been a 
fully a full first of all there needs to be a truth and reconciliation process between the community and the police right basically we fucked up this is how we're gonna fix it so we messed up we messed up gloriously and this is how we're gonna fix it and then we need to understand that we need to scale back scale back by a lot NYPD has its own foreign intelligence unit. That's so creepy. I mean, and, and worse. Yeah. Why? Um, and then, you know, so that's what we're... You, no, Governor Cuomo, you have not met our demands. Um, we are demanding defunding and reinvestment in our community. Until he defunds, and I'm not talking about $1 billion, that means $5 billion left over, okay? Defunding and building up social services... I want to see things like if someone calls about a drunk person in the road that it's not police that uh, responds. I want to see medical staff respond because an intoxicated individual, that's a first medical issue. You know, um, if someone is acting out irrationally in the middle of the street, you know, I would like to see a rapid response team that is composed of social workers. And mental health people come out like that's I mean, when we talk about reform and defunding and reinvestment, I mean, completely shifting the shifting it, changing it rather than policing. How about giving our up the our giving our communities the resources they need to really build um, self-determination and be able to. Um, create for ourselves what we want our society to be rather than the edicts from above. There has been uh, a debate recently um, between the left liberals. People are saying, you know, defund the police. Oh, it doesn't. Don't worry. It doesn't literally mean defund the police. Um, and then there's, you know, been people uh, who are writing, yes, defund the police literally means abolish the police, no more police. Uh, where do you where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you in favor of full abolition? Um. So when we say defund the police, I mean, completely changing the way we deal with this idea of quote-unquote crime, right? So if we have someone behaving in a way that is not, um, that doesn't go along to what is supposed to be the norm, how do we, cre- how do we address that, right? Um, and as a nurse, I also, coming from a, I do have a background in social work. So for me, when we talk about social ills that produces crimes, then we need to bring up social um, solutions for that. Rather than policing, we should be creating more opportunities for people to grow and to reach their potential. Um, and so when I see, when I, when I say defund, I mean taking the money from police, that the same NYPD that has a foreign intelligence department, that's unnecessary. Um, and then putting that back into the community so that we address the issues that cause people to commit crime. That's what I mean. Um, eventually, we will see the abolishment of police because we're creating tactics to reform people rather than penalize them. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's, that's how we answer that. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. So like, so like a a reform and rehabilitation based uh, approach to justice, as opposed to a punitive approach to justice, which you don't even need to dig very. It's not even like a controversial opinion anymore that like the the prison system in this country and like mandatory minimums and all that. It's not about justice and it's certainly not about reform. It's not even or, about preventing people from committing crimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's it's not about rehabilitation either because the recidivism rate is so astronomical. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there are all these, um, you know, there are all these, even once someone has served their time, there are all these uh, things that felons are uh, excluded from from doing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um even when you come out of prison uh, as a parolee you need a lot of things to get you set up on your feet like mm-hmm. after spending 15 or maybe even a year in jail you your your mind changes you know your mind changes and so you need to be help, rehabilitated back into society you know, how do I now coming out, how do I live and try to remain in a place where I can think positively and and create a life for myself and my, for my family where I can provide and reach, you know, help my kids reach their potentials, help myself reach my potential. There's not enough programs. So defunding the NYPD, that's just not just taking the money away it's about putting it back to where it belongs putting it Mm -hmm. back in the hands in our hands in a way that is the most meaningful way i want i want people who come out of um prison to have mental health services i want people to come out who youth that have um been through you know the justice the justice system to feel like they're not they're not bad. I work at the Administration of Children's Services and the youth that come out of the, 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 the justice system, there's this tag on them that they're bad. But at 16, how could you possibly be bad? Yeah, you're a kid. You're a kid, you know? And All so- kids are bad. I'm against them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, really thinking about what are we doing as a society? Do we just take the problem and toss it away, which is what we're doing with mass incarceration? Or do we actually have honest conversations? We have trillionaires like Jeff Bezos, and then we have somebody like George Floyd who got pressed, who died, who had by a knee on his neck for 20, a counterfeit $20. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. One thing that has been kind of a theme throughout this conversation. Um, You've been talking about, um, you know, your approaches to solving uh, various problems that you would address in office, you know, uh, from a perspective that is deeply informed by socialism, like you're a socialist candidate. One of the things that has really been uh, a thing for the past, you know, oh, I guess really since you know, 2014, 2015, when Bernie Sanders started running um, is this 
statement that is, in my opinion, totally bad faith that socialism is a thing for white guys, that those, you know, only white dudes who have podcasts or whatever are the only people who could possibly uh, care about socialism. Um, have you heard people say that? And and if so, what do you think or how do you respond to that? Um, people who say that absolutely do not understand the issues that they're they're turning their eye a blind eye on what's the problem i have said this to my campaign managers and said this to anyone that volunteers on my campaign you are part of a campaign that seeks to uplift the most vulnerable people when we talk about democratic socialism if the most vulnerable the people who are black and brown don't have a voice, then this is not democratic and it's not socialism. It's not. And so that's why it's so interesting. It's so important, not just interesting, it's so important that we have a slate of DSA candidates that are black and brown people who come from the neighborhood, that comes from, that are informed by the neighborhood that they um seek to represent. They are informed by the coalitions that they take part of and the issues that, aff- that affect them, right? I care about immigrant immigration policies because I am the daughter of immigrant, uh, Haitian immigrants. Um, I care about uh, gender issues. And when we talk about living in a country that up until, what, yesterday when you know, we acknowledge that discrimination is based on sex, is, includes trans um, people, transgendered people. Like that, that's important because I'm also a woman. Like I understand that, you know? Um, so for someone to say that socialism is for white guys, that, I dismiss that. They don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. To me, socialism is what's saving my life right now. The, the, the belief that there is a system that is for m- me to put my input and that I not only put my input, but I can get what I need to, to be human and to live. That's, that's, that's what's saving me right now. And I I'm think, saying that yeah. as, a, as a Black woman who, who did go to school, who who is professionally successful. Like, I need this. Yeah, and, and I think that, that the view of, of that is, is changing, and I think a lot of that has had to do with the, uh, the down ballot, and, but also, like, federal candidates who, have run, who are DSA-backed. Like, the most, three of the most prominent DSA-backed candidates uh, or politicians right now are three women of color, um, AOC, Ilan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib. Um, I don't know if Rashida is, I don't think she identifies as a socialist, but... She is backed by them, I believe. That's Let's hope so, because I love her. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, have to fact I, check it later. Yeah, no, no, no. I think... Um, but those, I, I think they have really changed uh people's 
perceptions of what of what socialism is and i think i mean i think that polls like the polls of people of our of our generation of millennials of people basically of people under 45 like socialism is seen with a po- a positive connotation rather than as a pejorative um and i think that's like really really powerful too but it goes back to the fact that like again we're talking about like it's really the 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 game in town that is addressing people's material needs and and ha- and the ways in which this is these are the, all of these things are interconnected as you were discussing with like healthcare and housing like and going back to the the beginning of our our conversation like lead in people's building like that directly if if babies are brought up in a house with lead exposure they're if they even have a small amount of it in their system they are pretty much guaranteed to have uh cognitive defects and then that you know we um and that actually is exactly what happened to when when there were a bunch of profiles done on freddie gray after he was murdered that's exactly what happened he was by the time he was two years old he had six times the minimum toxic amount of lead in his system. Um, and so I, yeah, so I just think of it, all of this is interconnected and it all like with police and housing and healthcare. And I think once you kind of see them that way, then they become, yeah, I don't know. It, it become like, I feel like for a lot of Republicans and centrists, uh, politics is just like a game. It's just like a country club cricket match. And I, I, I think when you see, when you're trying to address people's like real material base needs, it's the stakes just become so much higher than that. Yeah. Because it forces, when you look at the disenfranchisement or the lack of privilege for someone else, it forces you to see your privilege. It forces you to see exactly where you stand and what gains you have. Um, I, in college, we did the privilege walk and um, I saw like every statement that was said, someone took a step forward and they never looked back. And it wasn't until the end of the activity that they were forced to look back that they were able to see, wow, um, these are the gains that I've had where it's just, this is just what I was born into. This is what I was. And I, I, I have without any kind of, any ty- a type of give back. And so I think that's the issue that most people, a lot of people of privilege have. It's that look back. It hurts. It hurts mm-hmm. to look back, to see that, the same society that has favored you, or even in the thoughts that all the things that you've thought you've never had, now you look back, oh my God, I have to rethink the way I, I live. That mental push is, is impossible for some. It's impossible to say, I have been given so much and now so much is required of me. That isn't, that I think the people who are able to supersede that 
fear and that um, feeling of guilt, that person is amazing. And I, that's the type of person I want on my campaign. And I think we've attracted some people like that. But that's the type of people that will change our society. Totally. I really want to make sure that uh, our listeners who are able to vote for you uh, understand how to go out and vote for you. So it's June 23rd. Yes. New York primary. June 23rd. Tuesday. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, yeah. So, OK, if you have to have sent your absentee ballot and already. Yes. But yes, today you, was the last day. June 16th was the last day. And then, but then if you didn't turn in your absentee ballot on time, you can go vote in person, uh, you know, with a mask, of course, and social distancing. Um, and you can start voting now. Yeah. Oh, you can start voting. And there's specific places that are open for early voting. Look it up on NYC polling site. Nice. And what are the parameters of your district? I know I can vote for you, but. Yes. <laughs> so we have Crown Heights, a little bit of Crown Heights, a little bit of Bed-Stuy up to Nostrand Avenue. And then we have all of Prospect Heights, Clinton Hill and Fort Greene Park. That is awesome. Um, yes. And if you, you do live in that district, definitely make sure to vote. Uh, these uh, elections are often won by a very small margin. So, yeah, teeny tiny. Tiffany Cabal yeah. lost by 60 votes. Yep. I don't really think she lost. I think she was robbed. But, <laughs> she won. I mean, yeah. In yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, speaking of that, you know, there there are a, a number of ways that uh, the New York political machine plays games and, uh, you know, can if it's real close, they can figure out how to do some stuff to make the numbers work out in their favor, which is why it is extra important uh, for you to go out and vote uh, for these awesome TSA backed candidates. Um, before we let you go, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Now's the time. Now's the time. I, I, don't, I don't, It's not crazy time. It's organizing time. Mm -hmm. It's strategizing time. It is get back our time. But it's definitely not crazy time because to say it's crazy means lack of control. And we clearly have demands. We clearly have objectives and purposes. So it's, it's the time to join us and get what we need the most. <laughs> Organizing gets the goods. Let's yep. go. And <laughs> where can people follow you on social media? Oh, yes. We have Farah for Assembly uh, on Instagram and Facebook. And Farah for the number four is on my Twitter. And my Twitter is hip and happening. Yeah, everything's popping off on my Twitter. So, <laughs> so great, 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 great Twitter. Yeah. Great. Oh, if Twitter. you don't. And then Farah is also for assembly.com. If you uh, if you can't vote um, in this district, you know, definitely retweet, spread the word on social, make sure that volunteer yeah, volunteer. Um, I didn't know if you still were uh, taking new volunteers. Uh, yes, I am. Go get out the vote started. What? Monday. So it's like every day intense phone banking from 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. So we're going to start from on Saturday. 10 a.m. to like 8 p.m. Calling everybody in the district to make sure they come out and vote. So we need all hands on deck. 
All right. All hands on deck. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Farah. Uh, this was awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much. Many Thanks, Farah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.